0: Welcome to Plodcast, episode number nine. We're getting used to this. I hope you're getting used to this. So I want to begin by talking about uh, the heartening... um, What do I want to say? I want to talk about the encouraging manifestation of a resurgent pro-life movement. We talked about this earlier, uh, but uh, there's a younger generation of pro-lifers who are interested in abolishing human abortion now. Uh, they are abolitionists. They are not interested in splitting the difference. They, they want um, human abortion gone. They want it to, made, to be made illegal. And knowing that uh, we live in a world where somebody is always going to uh, do what they ought not to do, they at least want human, they at least want our society to be formally on the record as rejecting that they 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 don't want to accommodate themselves at all to the appalling practice of human abortion now there's several things i wanted to say about this um, the first is that it seems to to people who don't understand the issue it seems extreme or hardline or you mean you don't you're opposed to abortion in every instance even in cases of rape and incest and that's the uh, That's the kind of Exception that politicians are accustomed to hide behind well I'm opposed to abortion except in cases of rape and incest and when they say that They are showing that they are simply responding to pressure and that they don't understand the issue at all They don't understand what's motivating pro-lifers at all for example when you say that you're opposed to abortion except for cases of rape and incest, you're saying, in effect, that when a rape occurs, there there is the offender, the criminal, the rapist, there is the victim, the mother, the, the woman, and then there is the child. And you're saying there are two innocent... You're saying, in effect, you're not saying this out loud, but you're saying this in effect. You're saying that there are two... Innocent parties in in this situation, and one guilty party. So the rapist is the guilty party, and and the woman is offended. She's a victim, uh, and the child is a victim of this um, of this rape. So, what what the politician is saying is that he is in favor of executing one of the innocent parties in this crime, and not dealing with the criminal, not, de- not dealing with the, the criminal the same way. In other words, if you proposed executing the rapist, he, he would no doubt say, "Oh no, no, I don't think we should execute the rapist. I think we should execute the person who came into existence as a result of that rape. In, in cases of incest, they're doing um, something similar, something analogous, where they're saying that if a child is begotten as a result of an incestuous union, then basically the the odds of a birth defect or odds of a some sort of severe handicap go way up and consequently here you've got three parties uh, and presumably this is a consensual incestuous uh, relationship. If it's not, if it's uh, rape and incest both, then we're back in the in the first scenario where you've got three parties, one of them guilty, two of them innocent. And politicians who are saying, let's execute the most defenseless, the most innocent, the most vulnerable party in this whole situation is demonstrating that the, that, that politician is not really pro-life because it, it's clear that he does not understand the underlying premise that motivates pro-lifers, which is the unborn child is a human being. The unborn child is there. The unborn child is someone who ought to be considered. And, and so consequently, I welcome the return of pro-life hardliners. I welcome the return of uh, pro-life abolitionists. I, I welcome this sort of, uh, uh, let's draw the straight line and let's fight until we get what we're, what we're after. I think that that's all to the good. Having said that, I do want to issue a caution to um, our new abolitionists. I do want us to be careful. And that is because the Bible tells us, the Bible teaches us how to agitate for social reform. And basically I'm taking this as a, uh, um, I'm taking the force of all of Scripture, all, the whole counsel of God. What does, what does the biblical worldview want us to do? about social evils, like slavery, like the gladiatorial games, like abortion, basically ungodly people doing what ungodly people do. And they not only do it themselves, but they do it to other people. There are other people who are uh, victims of what they're doing. The Bible teaches us that we are to labor for reformation. We are not to labor for reformation. Revolution, we want reformation, not revolution. I'm fond of saying as a pastor that there's no situation so bad but that you can't make it worse. Uh, we could take a situation where we have the abortion carnage, and pro-lifers could attack it in such a way as to actually make the problem worse. That's possible, and that's if that that's what's going to happen if we attack it as revolutionaries. Uh, so, what do I mean by uh, reformation? Reformation is the way the gospel works. Reformation is leaven working its way through the loaf. Reformation is a sower goes out to sow his seed. Uh, Reformation is the rock that is um, cut out uh, without human hands in the book of Daniel and strikes the statue of of all these great human empires on the feet. And then that rock grows and and becomes a mountain that fills uh, fills the entire earth. Uh, Reformation is like the living water that flows out over the threshold of Ezekiel's temple. And when it first crosses the threshold, it barely gets the bottom of your shoes wet. Then it's ankle deep, then it's knee deep, and then it's waist deep. And, and eventually, the end result is, is the healing of the nations. So we should, we should know where we're going. Uh, we should know that, that when, the gospel, when the earth is, is full of the knowledge of the Lord... As the waters cover the sea, when that is the case, when the lion lies down with the lamb, when the children are playing uh, at the cobras uh, with the cobras and uh, are, and don't have to worry about it, when we've reached that state of affairs as a result of the gospel, you can rest assured that there will be no abortion clinics. When when Isaiah looks forward to that day, when when all these wonderful things happen, when we study war no more. Uh, when the trumpet is hang uh, is um, uh, put up in the hall when when we beat our swords into plowshares, when that happens, of course there will not be abortion clinics and that's the end result of of the gospel permeating the whole of society and it, you get to the point where you, these things um, fall away they we we repent of them we stop doing them and uh, insightful Christians should be eager for that day and and have their eye on that day from the very start. When we when we first start the process, we but we don't we don't try to fight, we don't demand these results in two minutes. What we what we do is we want to have the we want the gospel to do the gospel work, and we want to do it without blowing up clinics, without shooting abortionists. We want to do it. But we, want to, we, we do want to do it. We want to get there. We insist that we get there. And then when uh, we have, as a society, recognized that the unborn child is a true human being um, and, and worthy of the full protection of the law, and the law is changed in order to provide that protection, and then someone against the law um, commits murder, then, of course, the law can deal with that person the way the law already does in comparable situations. So basically, my, my, uh, I want to cheer on our younger um, abolitionist pro-lifers. I want to encourage them, but I want, to, I want them to think Reformation, not revolution. Reformation, not revolution. So here on podcast, one of the things I want to do is uh, talk about uh, books. Books are a big part of my life, and I I would encourage you to have books be a big part of your life. And so I want to talk about them and encourage you to turn to them, read them, love them, treasure them, mark them up, read them to your kids, so on. So uh, the book I picked that I want to talk about um, uh, today is... Tolkien's work, Tolkien's work about Middle Earth, uh, primarily *The Lord of the Rings*. On, on, um, you you can, if you're indifferent, um, depending on your mood, you can read read *The Hobbit* as a companion vol- volume or *The Silmarillion* as a companion volume. But primarily, I want to talk about *The Lord of the Rings*. Uh, Tolkien uh, approached the creation of his imaginary world, or his mythic restatement of this world he was trying to create a mythology for england basically he goes about the creation of this world in a very painstaking way he um now it looks like c s lewis his friend c s lewis does it in more of a slapdash way you know he just goes off and you know licks his pencil and and there you go where tolkien took years decades to work through this uh material, uh, Tolkien would write carefully, trying to align the timetable and the chronology of what he was doing with the phases of the moon so that everything was consistent. Tolkien was uh, uh, very much a perfectionist, and and he invented uh, languages to go with this world. He invented a detailed history to go with this world, which you can uh, read the outlines of in the Cimmerillian. and he Basically, you you reach down in Middle Earth and pick up a uh, a fistful of dust, and you are you've got your you're you're holding the dust of antiquity. There are dead kings here. This is something that has has the feel of an ancient world, and uh, Tolkien creates that successfully. Uh, Michael Ward talks about uh, this the atmospherics of a world that's created when he's talking about Lewis's. Uh, uh, success in Narnia, and he, he uh, uses a word that Lewis coined, um, uh, riffing off of County Donegal in Ireland, um, and Lewis talked about the Donegality of a place. Uh, well, uh, Narnia has a particular Donegality, and few people were as successful in, in creating the Donegality of a, of a particular place than, than, uh, than Tolkien was in his creation of Middle-earth. There's one thing I would like to point out about the book, about the Lord of the Rings, which um, may allay the concerns of some Christians who are concerned that Gandalf has a wizard's hat and they don't like Harry Potter and they don't like um, magicians and and witches riding on brooms. They don't like all the stand that standard apparatus of witchcraft and doesn't the Bible prohibit uh, witchcraft and so on. I would I would want to argue that the Lord of the Rings is probably uh, the most profound anti-witchcraft uh, book ever written. It is an amazing book in this regard. Think about it. The uh, Sauron crafts the Ring of Power that binds the other Rings. Uh, the uh, if there is an artifact, uh, if there is an artifact of pure magic, of the of the classic kind, it's that Ring of Power. And through a fluke through an apparent fluke, the good guys come into possession of this ring. And they they finally get together and hold a council of war on what to do with this ring. And the entire framework of the book is dedicated to every one of those people having to be tested and resisting the, the allure of the ring. Um, Elrond passes the test, Gandalf passes the test. Galadriel passes the test. Frodo passes the test, mostly. Um, he craters right at the end, but that um, there are reasons for that. Bilbo passes the test. Um, uh, Faramir passes the test easily. Uh, Boromir fails the test and tries to grab the ring and use it to his own, uh, you know, use it for good purposes. Boromir is the one who buys into the white magic lie. All we, we, we're the good guys. We have this ring of power. We can use it for good. Well, the good guys understand that this kind of magic is evil and everything they do is dedicated to the destruction of the ring. The whole their Their whole plan is, surrounds, destroying that ring, throwing the ring back into the fire where it was forged and not doom. And I, I want to argue that this assault on evil magic is one of the reasons for the book's success. Anyway, it's a great book. I've read it a number of times, and I would encourage you to read it. If you haven't, read it again. If you have, read it again. If you've read it twice and so on. So one of the things I'm doing uh, here on podcast is working our way through the New Testament, considering all the different words that are used in Scripture in the New Testament for various uh, kinds of sin, various descriptions of sin. And uh, today we're addressing the word adikia. It's used multiple times in the New Testament, and it's rendered uh, into English by different words like unrighteousness or iniquity. It's a general word unrighteousness or iniquity. Um, in a future podcast, we're going to uh, consider that word rendered as iniquity, and here, unrighteousness. In, in order not to burden ourselves, we'll do it in several installments. Jesus claimed to have no unrighteousness in him because he was seeking the glory of the one who sent him. We see that in John seven eighteen. Jesus said there's no adikia, no unrighteousness in him. We see here that the heart of unrighteousness is seeking glory for self in a selfish way. So when Jesus says there's no unrighteousness because he's seeking the glory of someone else, then that tells you what that unrighteousness uh, was like. At the same time, a person can be surrounded by this kind of self-seeking, this kind of unrighteousness, and yet not participate in it in the same way. Um, You can be around it, you can come into contact with it, but not be a... Um, partaker luke sixteen nine says this, and I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the Mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. So we're told to use the crooked, unrighteous instruments of the world and straighten them out for God's purposes. So Mammon is unrighteous, unrighteous mammon, and and we are told to use it uh, for good and godly purposes, not surprisingly. Unrighteousness is an important theme in the book of Romans because righteousness is a great theme in the book of Romans. It's used twice in Romans 1.18. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against every form of ungodliness and unrighteousness. And this unrighteousness of men is revealed even further in that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Unrighteousness does not just love the false but also hates what is true. Later on in this chapter in verse 29 Paul gives us the genus, unrighteousness, and then lists some of the species. The list that follows is extensive, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, and so on. For three verses, unrighteousness wields authority and commands sinners to do things. Man is created such that he must be obedient. He either obeys the truth or he obeys unrighteousness, one or the other. In the Pauline setup, the opposite of true is not false but rather unrighteous. So um, Paul's not doing logic diagrams on the board. He says, true is over here, unrighteous unrighteous is over there. He also does the same thing in another letter. Unrighteousness is deceptive, and that is the way Satan works. That's in 2 Thessalonians 2.10. The contrast, again, is between unrighteousness on the one hand and truth on the other. Those who did not believe the truth are those who had pleasure in unrighteousness, 2 Thessalonians 2.12. Truth is not merely propositional. Truth is moral. Back in Romans, some had argued that our unrighteousness sets off God's righteousness in some sort of complementary relief, 3.5. In other words, if we're unrighteous, doesn't that make God look good? Uh, That's true enough. It does make God look good. But that doesn't provide a sufficient reason why the righteous God would withhold judgment. Uh, we do make god look good by our sin but that wasn't our intent the fact that god sovereignly disposes of both jacob and esau does not mean that he is unrighteous we see that in nine fourteen. christians are told not to deliver their members not to deliver their bodies over to sin as instruments of unrighteousness Six thirteen. this means that christians can do this kind of unrighteousness they're physically capable of doing unrighteous things but their new identity in Christ makes it a profound incongruity. Paul grabs that incongruity in order to shake them with it. He uses the inc- incongruity as a handle to grab them and shake them. But God has had mercy on the unrighteous, uh, Hebrews eight twelve. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. All unrighteousness is sin, 1 John 5, 17. And sin is lawlessness. So apart from repentance, those given over to unrighteousness will, re- will reap what they have sown. They will receive the reward of unrighteousness, which would be the wages of sin, which is death. We see that in 2 Peter 2.13. They are like Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. 2 Peter 2.15. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor to You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.